We have before us here, yet again, the account of the crucifixion of the Lord here in uh, Mark 15. And we have a sober responsibility, every single one of us, to seek to reconstruct in our minds what happened then. Because in his sufferings there, we have the quintessence of all the sufferings of all God's people on an individual level. And that is why each of us personally can look to him there and find something in common between our experience and his. Now, admittedly, it does take quite a bit of reflection. It, it does need a bit of searching out to work out how he there, AD 33 or whatever, on a little hill on a Friday afternoon, on a day in April, just outside Jerusalem, can somehow connect with me. He there on that cross somehow connecting with me in the 21st century with a world full of technology unheard of, unimaginable in, in his time, full of issues which appear to be so radically different to the issues that people faced in, in those times. It's some, sometimes hard to discern the lines of continuity. But this is the whole point of him bringing before himself, uh, bringing before us himself as our uh, icon, if, if you know what I mean, not in the Orthodox uh, Catholic sense of that, but uh, as the one to whom we should, we should aim and uh, set our ambitions, that he there is to be every man. He there is to be each of us. And we are to carry his cross, and yet we are also to carry our own cross, in the sense that our cross is to be his cross. And the, as Paul says in Romans 6, the, the death that he died becomes the death that we die. Not only in baptism, but in the life of dying and rising again, which we sign up to by becoming in Christ. And so, what I'm going to do this time is to simply go through, again, the crucifixion record, aware of our tendency to want to... Um, let our attention wander, shall I say, to get off on irrelevances, because we just don't want to, to have our attention focused on him there, because it demands an awful lot from, from us. I'd like to uh, start, first of all, with uh, a reflection on uh, verse 40, 44 where Pilate marveled if he were already dead. He was obviously pretty surprised, and it is recorded by Josephus and others that uh, crucifixion victims usually lingered for about two days before they, they actually died. Now, the legs were broken, I think, at this time, so that the victims would die quickly, not as has been supposed, to stop them running away. The contemporary uh, references to crucifixion talk about legs being broken so that they would die, not to stop them somehow getting off the cross and running away. And it's been pointed out by, by quite a few writers, the, the, the clearest and most, uh, I, I guess, popularly available is in Verna Keller's book, The Bible is History. And he... he uh, gives uh, evidence for, for believing, and, and you can find this all over the internet and in all sorts of books, uh, that there was often a small support attached to the, uh, to the upright, 
to the uh, the plank of uh, of wood or tree that was the cross that was called a sedile uh, a seat and the idea was that the victim of crucifixion could ease the pain from time to time by as it were sitting on that by supporting themselves on this so that the blood would return to the upper half of the body because if you uh, take a, a human being and just suspend uh, a person by their two hands, the blood will sink very quickly into the lower, lower part of the, of the body. And after about 10 minutes, blood pressure will have dropped by about 50%, pulse rate doubles. And this is a pretty common form of, of death, particularly in, uh, in, in the Far East, in, in China and, and Japan. And if you literally suspend a person like that, they, they cannot actually survive for, for that long. The, the heart will in, in the end rupture. Uh, they certainly cannot exist in that situation for, for two days. The, the, every human being will die well before that. So why then did people last so long, uh, crucifixion victims? It was because of this seat that they could uh, sort of push back on, which, as I say, that they could almost not sit down on it, but... Um, take some uh, some temporal sort of relief and as they did that the blood would go back a little bit into the upper part of the of the body so it seems to me that there was Jesus with this continual temptation every second to push back onto the seat but he didn't so the dead weight of his body was hanging uh, right suspended really uh, he was hung as it were on the tree and this would have made breathing extremely difficult um, and he would have been panting uh, he would have been unable or very difficult to empty his his lungs that had come full of uh, carbon dioxide and eventually uh, death resulted uh, effectively from uh, asphyxia from the same sort of uh, Thing that happens uh, when, when somebody chokes or, or strangles to death so then he there was really a great example of self-control and I think you see some of the Psalms taking on a kind of literal reference to the Lord's final agony Psalm 38 verse 10 my heart pants my strength fails me as for the light of my eyes it also is gone Psalm 73:26. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart. So he would have uh, had huge pressure on his heart as he struggled there to uh, to breathe. And yet, why didn't he? Why didn't he press back on this uh, on this seat? I think why he didn't do that was because he for the same reason, did not take the painkiller when it was offered. He wanted, as it were, to suffer to the maximum. In the same way as there's that bit in the Wisdom of Solomon, one of the um, Jewish apocryphal writings, which talks about that the person who claims to be Messiah, who is a false Messiah, should be tested and tortured to the uttermost to see if he really is the Son of God, and if he changes, uh, if, if he uh, survives the torture at the last minute, then you know he is. But if you think someone's a false Messiah, 
uh, you can torture them to, to the extreme. And we looked at that, I think, in one of our, our other talks. And so I think they try to make him suffer as much as they could. And that would have probably involved uh, nailing through the testicles. It would have involved a naked crucifixion. That's why Hebrews says that if we crucify again the Son of God, we put him to a naked shame. Um, and despite that, he himself took upon himself, I think, the, the maximum level of, of suffering. And when you look at the seven last sayings from the cross, to speak if you were not pushing back on, the, on that uh, seat, as it's called, would have been extremely difficult. Now let's stop there. Moving away from the physicality of what happened 2,000 years ago on that Friday afternoon, on that day in April, are there times when it is a real sacrifice for you to communicate? Are there times when you would just rather not bother talking to somebody? When you would rather retreat into yourself? Are there times when you are in huge pain, maybe heart problems? Are there times when it seems to you that there's nothing wrong with taking an easy way out? And yet you know that actually the higher level beckons, and that that is the way of Christ, and that is the way that really we are asked to go in response to his grace. Now, they are issues that affect us right now in this century, right now in our lives, surrounded as it might appear we are by a totally different set of circumstance. But the essence is the same. And we find that essence brought to its ultimate term in Jesus there on the cross. And so, although he did this for us, and we breathe a sigh of relief that where I would have pushed back on the seat and taken the easy way out, he didn't. And thank you, Jesus, and thank God that there is Jesus to save me from my own weakness and from my own lack of commitment. The message of the cross is not simply uh, a comfort that we are are forgiven and that it's kind of all okay, there is something far more in it. It is an inspiration to us to live according to his spirit. And there is something I would suggest almost mystical about it, magnetic about it in, in a sense, that, that looking at him there, we do feel some kind of inspiration, that I must do something, I must be something other than what I am. And that is why I think these uh, four records we have of the crucifixion are constructed in the way that they are. And Mark's record in particular has a lot of present tenses. Just look at um, seven verses 17 and uh, 19. Platting the crown of thorns... Uh, that's uh, in the RV, they clothe him, they smite him, etc. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, evident in, in the English text, but uh, certainly in the Greek text it's very clear that these are all present tenses, present continuous, platting, they clothe him, this, they smiting him, like, and also, uh, and you see this particularly, I, I think, in the uh, 
in Matthew's record, there's also a lot of continuous tenses. They kept on doing this, that, and the other to him. Particularly, they kept on offering him the painkiller. And so, we're being invited to see it all played out before our eyes, as it were, in real time. It was Harry Whitaker many years ago who coined the phrase Bible television, that we are to play Bible television. And I remember him saying how, try to do that with the Red Sea and see those waters whooshing backwards and the Egyptians screaming and uh, the Israelites who were the last lot of them turning behind them and with the spray of the, uh, the waves on them still saying, wow, thank you, God. Um, but try and do that with this. This, I think, is the ultimate in playing Bible television, of seeing it all, as it were, work out in front of our eyes, making it all come so real once again. And I also notice from a, a literary uh, point of view, in, in all these records, there is a distinct lack of adjectives describing words. I just look here at um, verses 23 to 26 of uh, Mark 15 here. They offered, they crucify, they part his garments, casting lots, they crucified him, as was written. There's not a single adjective there. And I'm pretty sure that if an uninspired writer had been trying to describe this, there would have been adjective after adjective. And why aren't there? You know, why doesn't it say, um, and they, uh, the, well, why doesn't it talk about his, uh, why doesn't, doesn't it describe with describing words the actual nailing of Jesus to the cross? It all, in all the records, it just says, and they crucified him, um, almost in passing. It's almost a sub-clause of, of the whole sentence. The actual act of nailing, the final evil, is almost in passing. And I, I find this, maybe just uh, my uh, sensitivity to language is, is such that I notice it. Um, but I, I'm here to just share my, uh, my take on all this with, with you, and you may or may not find it uh, helpful. Um, my, my suspicion is that there are no adjectives, or very few, in the, the four crucifixion records. Because we are to add them. We are to imagine how it was. And as I said, it doesn't quite matter if you get it wrong. It doesn't matter. The point is, we are to meditate upon him there. And yet we may feel that, wait a minute, that was him. And I am me today. And he did this for me exactly because I can't do what he did. Every step of the way, as we try to relive the process, I for one am saying, I would not have done this. I could not have done this. I would have failed. I would have given up. I would have called down the twelve legions of angels. I would have pressed back on the seat. I would have, you know, just not done it. And we have to be careful because... That is true. So the whole point of the death of Christ was exactly necessitated because we are like that. And yet, on the other hand, it is there as the 
as the crowning uh, picture and, and climax of the Christian life, your life and, and my life, that the life of self-denial, the life of self-control, the life of not saying, writing, uh, tapping on your computer keyboard, thinking uh, in your mind exactly just whatever you want, that is the essence of carrying the cross. It is a call to self-discipline and a self-control and to radical change. Without question it is. And yet on the other hand, because we fail, we end up saying in the simplest possible way, thank God for Jesus. Now, on that theme, I, I would like to uh, <coughs> make a point you've probably heard before, but I think it's, uh, it's very powerful. In verse 22, they bring him unto the place Golgotha, and it's there that they crucify him. And yet, in 21, it says that they had compelled this guy passing by, Simon of Sidene, coming from the country, uh, to bear his cross. So then, Simon carried the cross. And in verse 22, the idea really is, <clears throat> they got him, they carried him to, to Golgotha. Luke says <clears throat> that Simon was asked to carry the, the back part of the cross behind Jesus. John's record says that Jesus left the place of judgment carrying his own cross. Now, putting all that together, he walks out, they put the cross upon him, and it would have been fairly heavy, and don't forget they had scourged him, and uh, John Pollock reckons that it was very uncommon <clears throat> for the Romans to both scourge and crucify a person. Uh, and therefore, <clears throat> the, the scourging on the back would have been such that it uh, would have been very difficult for him to carry uh, the cross. But anyway, John says that he went out carrying it. I mean, not John Pollock, I mean the, uh, the Gospel of John says that he, he went out carrying the cross. And then Luke says, Simon was asked to carry the back part of the cross behind him. He found that cross too heavy. And yet, Matthew and Mark say that Simon carried the cross. And here in Mark, verse 22, they carried him, they got him, to Golgotha. You can see what happened. He came out carrying the cross. He couldn't manage it, so they said, hey, you... This Simon guy who was just passing by wasn't even like going to the crucifixion. They said, hey you, get here and carry the cross. And so he carries it behind Jesus. And then it would seem to me that Jesus collapses. And they say to Simon, right, well you can carry the whole thing, mate. And they pick him up, pick up Jesus, and carry him to the actual place of nailing. Simple conclusion. Jesus could not actually carry his own cross. And yet he talks about us carrying his cross. doesn't mean he failed morally because he was too weak to carry the cross. But I think it is a wonderful encouragement that we who may be at our baptisms or sometimes anyway in our lives, we who bravely think I can carry the cross behind Jesus and yes, I'm to carry my cross as my Lord carried his cross. Yeah, you know, he couldn't actually carry it physically. It was too much for him. He was a human. He was not a superman, just like you and I are a human. We're not superhuman.
And of course, you, you can make a pretty good case that um, the Simon of Cyrene, uh, the father of Alexander and, and Rufus, that this is the, uh, the Rufus mentioned in Romans 16, verse 13. And you can make a, a, a fair case that, therefore, uh, Simon converted to Christianity and his sons also. That's why his sons are mentioned. And why would they be mentioned? Because they were known to the early church community. And so Simon was the one who literally, physically carried the cross of Jesus. And yet Jesus says that we are to carry his cross. So Simon becomes typical of all of us. And this guy, it would seem to me that he's coming out of the country. The impression is from here and uh, particularly from, uh, from Matthew's record, the impression is that this guy <clears throat> was just passing by the place. He, the place of crucifixion, he, like, he wasn't going to see the crucifixion. He'd been out working in the country, and uh, in the countryside, and you sort of imagine the guy carrying a spade or something over, or a mattock over his shoulder, and they say, hey, you. And it's a bit like us. We were all going someplace else in our lives, and we had a meeting with Providence, and we were compelled to carry the cross of Jesus. And that man really becomes symbolic of, of all of us. And it's sudden and it's unexpected, but it's how it is. Now, we could, we could think about the, the, the physical pain of Jesus, the, and it's, you know, maybe we don't like thinking about it, but it's something we probably don't do too often, and so, why not? Uh, let's take 15 uh, Pilate scourged Jesus and del delivered him to be crucified and I've mentioned that the Romans did not usually both scourge and crucify it could be that Pilate thought that by excessive scourging he would have um, sort of satisfied the Jewish council because he didn't obviously want to, uh, to, to have Jesus crucified and <clears throat> Yet, the point is that Jesus suffered more than anyone. And so, that scourging would have, it was enough to even kill some people. Some people died uh, under the scourging. Um, you, you can read a, a number of uh, historical accounts of what this, uh, th it's a technical phrase really, uh, scourging, what a, quote, scourging refers to. Um, Josephus uh, talks about how the body was stripped naked and flogged until flesh hung down in shreds. Thirteen stripes were against the breast and twenty-six on the back, and they chanted each uh, each each stripe. And men were known to have bitten their tongues in two during that scourging from from pain. And the victim was stretched with hands above their head, very much in the um, in the posture of, uh, of crucifixion. And there was a, uh, a clerk, apparently, who stood by to write down any confessions which they made. And, of course, if that is the case, there would have been no confession. And apparently people usually cried out anything, said just anything, to try to 
ease the pain, to try to persuade, desperately persuade these people to stop doing this to them. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Not only so that in our times of physical pain we, we perceive the connection with Jesus, um, but Peter speaks in 1 Peter 2.24 about how we are healed by Christ's stripes. By whose stripes we are healed. And so, why was all this necessary? Why did it have to be and why do we have to think about it? Because this is what your impatience yesterday and your bitter angry thought of this morning and mine, this is what it led to. Was it for me that this was done? This is great question in a lot of the classic Christian hymns. And the answer to that is yes it was. And also we have to think of the references in, in Hebrews, um, Hebrews 6, 6 uh, particularly, that talk about people today who fall away, who crucify again the Son of God. Now, somehow, this is the pain which we on this earth can cause to Jesus. And we think, well, how can it be? He did it all once already. How could it be that someone can do it to him again? Well, it can be simply because Jesus has such sensitivity to us. And therefore, there is a very real pain to him. And we need to think about that. I know we should rejoice, as I say so often. We should rejoice that if the Lord comes back at this moment, by his grace, I will be saved. Not that I should be, but I will be. Because I believe in his death for me, and his resurrection, and the good news of his kingdom that was made possible for sinners. And yet, looking at uh, the wider future, looking for a moment from another perspective, we should have a fear of the of the future we might miss because we could turn away from all this tonight or tomorrow we could just walk away from it all next year or ten years down the track we might not be here as believers and we need to be aware of that and we see people all around us turning away and I've had prophecy other descriptions of the last days make it pretty clear that this is what's going to happen unfortunately we can do this to Jesus Finally, as we come now in our minds to just sit in silence and focus upon him there, I want to talk a little bit about the cross and our conscience. The miserable, and they are miserable, academic critics of, of the Bible love to pick on the, the picture of Pilate that is presented, particularly here in Mark, and they claim that it's totally ahistorical, that it's, uh, it is completely at variance with all that uh, historians recalled about Pilate. Philo, for example, he speaks about Pilate uh, as a man of inflexible, stubborn and cruel disposition, famous for abusive behavior and endless savage ferocity. And 
but he he had a, a particular uh, almost love of um, irritating the Jews by uh, <clears throat> by by uh, mocking their their ways, and that he he really had a, a totally uh, damaged conscience to the point of him being really a uh, a psychopath. And yet Mark says in verse 5 that Pilate was amazed at the self-control of Jesus in not answering him. And he almost pleads with his Jewish subjects for justice to be done. See verse 14. Why, Pilate says, what evil has he done? And then of course in Matthew 27 it says that uh, Pilate washes his hands and says, look, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man. And to wash your hands is really a, was a, a Jewish rite uh, based on, uh, on the law to declare that he's innocent of the blood of, of this man. And yet Josephus says that Pilate totally despised Jewish religious customs and sensibilities. And he loved to uh, commit sacrilege against Jewish, uh, Jewish things. Now, even the conscience of Pilate was touched by this. And I think in verse 2, Jesus alludes to that. Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answering says unto him, You're saying it. Why did the Lord put it like that? You're saying it. Surely because he knew that Pilate, in his conscience, did actually know that Jesus was king of Israel. And particularly in the Greek, it's not quite like that, are you the king of the Jews? It is, you are king of the Jews, question mark. Or, well, I mean, there's no question mark in the original. But what he actually says is, well, he asks him, we have that in the text, so we know it is to be read as a question. But the, the actual text is, you are king of the Jews. In other words, question mark, you're king of the Jews? And Jesus answering said unto him, you're saying it. You've just said it. You are king of the Jews. Yes, Pilate, that is what you think in your conscience, what you believe, and you know that, don't you? So then, it seems to me that if the conscience of Pilate could be touched by the, 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 the sufferings of, of Jesus at this time, so also can the hardest of hard human consciences. Because it's no good saying that people are conscienceless. Everybody has some kind of conscience somewhere. It's built into us as part of our very structure. It's no good saying that some people uh, sort of don't, don't have it. They do. And so if you feel at times that you are starting to lose your sensitivity and lose your conscience towards the things of God, take some courage because, no, you can have that conscience stirred. And that is why there is this connection between self-examination and the, uh, the death of Jesus. That you can't see him there without quite naturally knowing yourself and having your conscience revealed you see this again in Luke 2 that uh, Simeon says that a sword uh, would, would pierce the side of Jesus and that it would pierce the heart also of Mary 
that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed.